Influence, the global podcast that shines a spotlight on the influencer marketing industry. Welcome to Influence, the global podcast that shines a spotlight on the influencer marketing industry. I'm Gordon Glenister, and in this edition, we're going to be looking at the legal aspect of being an influencer with industry expert Joe Farmer. We'll be looking at upcoming events in the digital and influencer world and be getting another three top tips for a successful influencer campaign from a leading industry figure. But first, I've been trying to get to the bottom of what makes a great influencer marketing campaign and what simply doesn't. So I started by asking Maeve Sugru, Marketing Director from influencer platform Zine. Sure. So um, I think one of my favourite campaigns um, on the platform um, has been with a French fine jewellery brand called um, Les Jorgettes by Altesse. Um, they run primarily gifting campaigns. Um, they're really trying to expand their global reach um, and as such have, I think, activated around 200 plus um, influencers um, so far. Um, so they're proposition is um their their jewelry is fully customizable and in you know kind of a variety of ways um they use our platform to um search for influencers who sit within the de- demographics they're trying to target and then uh, uh, you know they, they have their campaign set up their campaign guidelines so um the influencer is aware of you know the campaign goals for example um you know posting deadlines and so on but beyond that, leave all creative um, direction to the influencers. So I think because they're comfortable in the influencers they've chosen, because they get that visibility on their um, on their their data as well as the, the the content influencers have posted in the past, and they've also got their agreement in place, which covers you know kind of like the the, the technicalities and legalities of you know like when and, and and what to post. And then beyond that, they can actually just leave full creative control to the influencers themselves. Um, so the result of that is influencers creating some really beautiful, amazing content, displaying how the jewelry can be customised that that fits. Um, each um, indi- each individual influencer in their own unique style um, perfectly um, and then beyond that they're supporting that influencer's content afterwards so that includes using their content for their own social media channels and also using their content on their website um, obviously those things do need to be um, you know kind of like clarified in the influencer agreements but I think it's a really great example of how um, a brand is you know really expanding their global reach by um, you know seeing influencer marketing as an always-on um, working with influencers who have good brand affinity good creativity and a good data set and then supporting that influencer afterwards by you know engaging with that content and really um, I, I guess not just seeing them as a, as a gun for hire and okay great you've posted you know that's that's the last of you. Colin Buckingham from Birdseye told me how one of their most successful campaigns turned the negative into a positive. So um, I'll talk about a campaign that has worked well first, where we've used influencers, and I guess it's using influencers as part of a through-the-line campaign. Now, this actually was an unexpected campaign. It was a bit of a reactive campaign, but it was using influencers, I guess, to their full potential. Um, Moving back a couple of years... um, there was a Daily Mail article actually that came out attacking um, influencers and parents 
uh, parents who uh, were feeding their children fish fingers. They were considered slummy mummies. Um, obviously, <laughs> I didn't go down well with the mum community, which is a, a very vocal group, a very passionate group, and obviously a very hard-working group. Um, we weren't too keen on our fish fingers being slagged off either. So we jumped to the defence of um, the mummy bloggers who had been um, uh, mentioned in the Daily Mail and we basically teamed up with them. We did a reactive piece of content which basically heroed parenting um, using the influencers who had been called out in the Daily Mail and then put it out through our social channels um, which each of the mummy bloggers featured. Um, to date it's probably one of our most successful campaigns in driving brand purpose um, it went down really well from a sentiment point of view with mums and parents up and down the country um, congratulating Birdseye on, you know, standing with parents. And as a result, we've seen some really impressive results. But it doesn't always work out well. Here's Vic Miller from Brandwatch. I think a lot of it can be about um, the messaging. So, you know, you can find the right audience, you can understand your audience, find the right influencer, but what you actually put out and the message you put out can land terribly. And I think the Scarlett um, Dixon Listerine famous um, post with her looking immaculate on her bed with pancakes and strawberries and then this sort of bottle of Listerine plonked on the side, you know, it didn't land well. But yes, people polish themselves up for Instagram, um, and we're all aware of that kind of filter that people put on it, but that's it's just not a realistic um, campaign that's, gon- that's going to sit well with the audience. And it, it had huge backlash, including her getting death threats, which is absolutely bonkers. But it just shows it's not... There's so many steps to successful in- influencer marketing. And yes, starting with the understanding, but then also making sure that you're understanding how your audience tend to communicate online, um, the messaging they use, the language they use, you know, understanding what their normal feed would look like. And we, we use tools ourselves um, and on our own tools to do that. But just sitting in the shoes of the audience and looking through their eyes it is so important. Influence, the global podcast that shines a spotlight on the influencer marketing industry. So one of the most important areas of influencer marketing is ensuring everyone involved in the campaign keeps within the law. Until recently, the influencer world was largely unregulated. Far greater scrutiny from advertising industry regulators is now in place. But greater education and awareness of the rules is still very much needed. Joe Farmer is partner in top law firm Lewis Silkin, and she came into our studios a short while ago. And I started by asking her to tell us a little bit more about the firm. Yeah, so we're a law firm um, in the UK. We're based in in, in London. Um, we do lots in this space of working for creators, makers, innovators. We work with brands and the influencers themselves and some of the platforms, helping them out um, in this kind of evolving space of influencer marketing, working out what best practices and, and, and how to stay on the right side of the law. So give us a bit more of the lowdown on what you think people should do to be legally compliant? Yeah, so it's evolving quite fast, um, particularly in the UK and the US. um, And really, it's all about being transparent about when you're being paid or when you've got some kind of commercial relationship with a brand and an influencer, you've got to be transparent about the fact that it's marketing, Um, which sounds very simple, but how you do it is is the bit that gets tricky. So I think maybe five or six years ago, um, you used to see some influencers who would do things like um, bury in their Prog- uh, in their profile on their biography, say on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, you'd see things like, I am a brand ambassador for name of brand. 
What we've now got really clear guidance on, at least in the UK and the US, is that kind of uh, profile disclosure isn't enough. What you've got to do now is make sure that you disclose in each and every post or communication that you give. And that tends to be by saying something like hashtag ad or hashtag advert. So what about, the? because I think there's been quite a lot of news media now, which has been a little bit negative around those people that have, have abused this and in some instances, people have said, oh, I didn't realise that I had to do this. But surely now it's it's the law yeah. and ignorance is no answer to that response. So how would you how would you address that per se? Yeah, I think what we're actually seeing is that the influencers themselves are really keen to get this right because it's their business. Mm. You know, if they're. If their fan base feels like they're being duped because they're not being authentic or they're not being kind of upfront about the fact that they've been paid by a brand to, you know, mention a product or something like that, then it's just not in their interest. So I think what I see is it's actually the influencers who tend to be the ones who are really super keen to get this right. And they seem to be um, on top of what the latest guidance is, whether that's from the Advertising Standards Authority or in the States, there's the Federal Trade Commission. Um, Sometimes the brands themselves are a little bit reluctant to see the kind of hashtag ad disclosures because I think sometimes there's still a feeling that it looks a bit ugly. You know, People don't want to be that upfront sometimes, but um, certainly where we are right now is I think it's it's uh, we're seeing a, a much better understanding of what the rules are, and people are really keen to to do the right thing. And so, what's the difference between maybe a paid partnership, a sponsored post, hashtag ad, hashtag gifted? Yeah, you know, I, I think it, what 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 do you understand that influencers need to convey? What's the difference between some of those? Yeah, it's a really good question. And um, I think this is where some of the frustrations still lie in terms of how the regulation is evolving. So the simplest answer is if you want to be really sure that your disclosure is adequate from a legal perspective, you should be using hashtag advert or hashtag ad. Um, Hashtag sponsored has kind of become a little bit um, questionable in recent years. So the Advertising Standards Authority don't really like hashtag spawn or hashtag sponsored as a disclosure. Um, the reason for that is they say that um, sponsored brings to mind something more like a, I don't know, a live event or a music event or something where a brand is paying to be associated with a kind of existing thing, but the brand doesn't have any control over what's said. And the ASA thinks that influencer marketing is a bit different to that. And they think, you know, it's a much more of a, you know, the brand will be telling the influencer some of the things that it wants to say about the brand, etc. So the ASA basically don't like it sponsored as a, as a, as a message around mm. that. Mm. Um, hashtag gifted. We are seeing, seeing that as a, as a possible disclosure on some things. Um, but the ASA really likes hashtag ad as a disclosure. So if you're wanting to be really sure that what you're saying is uh, a, a, a label and a disclosure that works, hashtag ad is going to be the, the easiest one to use. And where should that go? Because, again, I've heard some people say, well, I, I do it and I bury it in the, yeah. in the links. Surely that's almost not being transparent and creating clarity, whereas actually if it's at the top, yeah. it, it is. Yeah. So what's your view on that? Um, 
it's it's becoming really clear that burying it in a long list of hashtags is is not enough. And it's the so the ASA has said they like to see it right at the top, the first disclosure before you get into all of that at mentions and tags, etc. So, I think now if we if we had an example of an influencer who did a disclosure right at the end of their of their um, post, that probably wouldn't be sufficient. Mm. And so so you're a big brand that is that is actually engaged with a number of influencers. And what happens if the campaign and the influences that they've used, maybe that they haven't gone through an agency, they've self-selected them, and they actually haven't used in any of their posts, what's the redress Mm -hmm. and what is the course of action that might well follow? So... In the UK, what would happen? So if it was a UK influencer or it was targeted at a UK market, you'd be looking at the kind of UK regulation of it. And that's one of the challenges with this is because, of course, all of these things are global. And one of the challenges is kind of working out which country's laws apply. Mm. But I'll tell you first about what would happen in the UK on that. So the first thing you look at is this Advertising Standards Authority um, and and, and the, the Committee of Advertising Practice Code. Now, if you breach that, um, there aren't financial penalties for breaching it. It's much more a system of um, adverse publicity that the influencer and the brand will get if if uh, if they breach these codes. Um, it tends to get picked up in things like um, the Daily Mail or the Radio 4 often talk about the, the latest ASA adjudications. So there is kind of some name and shame quality there. Um, We do also have in the UK um, a a law which is enforced by the Competition and Markets Authority. Um, And that starts getting a bit more serious if you if you if you attract um, the CMA, they're called the CMA's attention. Um, So recently, um, 16 celebrities and influencers were picked up by the CMA for the for, for, for lack of disclosure and lack of being clear about when they were being paid by a brand to do so. And some of them were really big names. Um. Uh, that, that that were caught up, and if you breach um, that particular rule, you can find yourself um, potentially facing criminal sanctions. Um, so no one yet has gone to prison over this, and I think it would take a particularly serious, repeated form of non-disclosure to go to prison. But potentially that there is that redress. And I mean, presumably, what we're all trying to do here is to is to educate the industry, the brands, the agencies, all of the partners in being open, honest, and transparent. And it's something think certainly that the BCMA are very keen to do with our uh, extended uh, code of conduct. So on that front, and you advise lots of different organisations and associations, including the BCMA, how important do you think uh, a proper code of conduct should be within our sector? I think it's really important. It's great to see what the BCMA is doing in this space. Um, You know, it's an evolving space. It's evolving each year. Um, You know, I think more and more people are aware of what their obligations are in terms of disclosures. But there's still more to be done in terms of reaching not just the really big influencers who probably do know what these rules are, but at the micro-influencer level, you know, I, I think awareness is probably not that great. Um, and so, you know, having a trade body that's looking at this, trying to um, really shine a spotlight on this and, and promote best practice is, is fantastic development. Great. <laughs> we think so too. Um, so a little bit more about videos now. What about when um, individuals uh, have found that their content has been used by somebody else? Um, in other words, taken their contact without permission. What are some of the rules around broadcast and, and rights? 
because that again is a is an issue about somebody's giving you single use and all of a yeah. sudden it's been purported somewhere else. What's, yeah. What's, what's the so view really around if I'm, that? If I, if I'm looking at it from the influencer's perspective, you know. Um, I really strongly recommend that all influencers make sure that they have a good, clear contract with the brands that they are engaging with. It doesn't need to be very long. It can be quite short and to the point. But the reason why I'm advising people to, to make sure that they've got contracts with brands is that should be super clear about how long, how long the brand can use that bit of content for, in what channels, in what media, and 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 when it needs to be, be taken down. Um and you know, if if that if that contract's in place, then it should be really clear about what what, what counts as using it outside of the original usage. Um, if you don't have a contract, it gets a bit more tricky to to try and talk about what what rights you had given over, what what licenses were given, etc. So that's why I always recommend having something in writing. And do you think copyright generally is a real challenge in this sector? I mean, you know, you often see when you go and look at images on the internet, it will often say copyright images but do people just ignore that and just whip the picture and use it 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 depends so if you're uh, an individual and you're on your facebook or twitter or instagram and you're um taking images uh that that are somebody else owns in terms of copyright um the likelihood of somebody complaining about your your use or suing you is probably quite low what I always say to brands, though, is don't just rely on that kind of Wild West feeling to think that a brand can also get away with the same level of, of, of taking third-party rights. You know, often if a brand uh, takes an image that belongs to somebody else or uses a piece of music, um, they will get approached by the original rights holder and told, stop using it or we're going to sue you for quite substantial damages because rights holders know that brands have money. So let's look at the area of fake followers. Uh, obviously, it's been in the news of late, and I know Instagram have done quite a lot to r- reduce this area of, 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 well, in a sense, fraud uh, from some of the platforms. What do you think influencers need to do to stop getting involved and engaged in this process? Because there's often this desire to grow their follower base and they're hounded by people that say, well, actually, for this amount of money, you can buy these followers and augment. But of course, if they're then wishing to create a commercial relationship with somebody and somebody's buying uh, into that individual based upon their follower count, well, then it is some form of fraud, isn't it? So what do you think is going to happen in this area now? And what can influencers do to stop, particularly the bot followers, from 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 getting involved in their accounts, it's a tricky one, isn't it? And I think I think this issue of bots is is it, we're going to have a lot more spotlight on it in the years to come. And and the reason why I say that is, what I'm seeing is brands engaging with influencers are they're changing um, the commercial terms a bit so that it's more. Uh, focused on the success of a campaign, so by that I mean we are yeah we yeah. we are seeing uh, not just straight line fees to influencers based on what deliverables they do, but fees that increase based on the level of engagement that that particular bit of content gets. So when you have that kind of engagement, it it means that the temptation or the the ability to skew those figures by unauthentic or or fraudulent means is is, is going to be um, uh, uh, more prevalent. 
So what do I think about what can be done? Well, I think um, technology is, is starting to play a part. So there are we're starting to see some more tools that enable brands and influencers to spot the bot and to kind of work out when, when there is that kind of fake engagement. I think, you know, influencers need to understand, and, and most do, to be fair, that the more that they engage in this practice, the less trust there will be in the industry as a whole. So while they might get a quick win on a campaign today, it's going to not serve them any uh, uh, favours in the future. Uh, yes, no, I absolutely agree. And of course, it's not just um, followers, it's also video views and all these other areas as well. Uh, so yeah, thank you for making that point. Uh, so the other area I want to talk about is scammers. And particularly uh, an incident that uh, popped up a little while ago was where I was speaking to somebody at an event and he was a really successful YouTuber. And he was saying to me that uh, people are trying to effectively clone his identity and use his account to drive some of his followers towards an event. Uh, and it was a real difficulty for him because obviously people, they, they didn't know who to follow, who's the real, who's the real celebrity in a way. So how can we get round this, this scamming uh, of, of identity theft, not not in its entirety, but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I do. And um, we, we've had a couple of instances of it with a couple of our um, clients that are influencers in this space. Um, so first and foremost, you know, identity theft is a criminal matter. So in in certain circumstances, it's a, it, you should be getting the police involved straight away. Um, and, and and the examples that I've seen have been pretty nasty and and have involved a criminal element in it. Um, Things that you can do kind of proactively to try and make it um, easier to protect yourself if, if, if you're unfortunate to have this is um, look at the protection that you have in your own brand as an influencer. So, you know, the bigger that you get as an influencer, you should be looking at, you know, do I need a trademark for my name or my nickname that I use and the way that I, you know, have my logo for my name? Um, look at what kind of domain names and uh, handles you've got because um, the more that you can do to kind of get exclusivity over all of those bits and pieces of your name and your persona, the more tricky it's going to be for somebody to take that and, and pretend that they are you. And if you've got a trademark registration, um, it means that when you're looking at this horrible thing of identity theft, you can also hit the scammer with trademark infringement um, claims, etc. And it just becomes a bit easier to, mm. to work your way through. Mm. So perhaps you can leave us with some of your top tips. So somebody uh, that wants to embrace on the influence as a career, what would you say they need to be thinking about from a legal perspective, what are the, your perhaps your summary of tips? Um, the first thing I'd say is don't be don't be frightened of the transparency that's required of you as an influencer engaging in influencer marketing. I think the public is well used to seeing hashtag ad now. Um, it doesn't put them off from the content that you're you're producing and that you're pushing out. So 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 make the kind of regulation your friend and just be upfront from the word go, and you'll not find that audiences are, are turned off by that kind of transparency. The second thing I'd say is um, get savvy about legal contracts. So um, don't just rely on you know a handshake um, and a verbal agreement with your brand that you're working with um, as to what you're going to deliver and when. You know, get it down in writing. 
get a good contract in place, understand whose responsibility um, different aspects are and agree how long they can use your content for. You know, as and when you get more and more successful, um, you won't want every single brand that you've worked with to be continuing to use your content for for an uh, infinite period of time. And the third thing I'd say is have a look at um, your own protection for your own brand as you're developing. So, you know, think about should I get a trademark for my name? Should I look at the logo that I use behind me as, a, as, a, as an individual um, influencer? Should I, should I look to get that protected as a trademark? Influence, the global podcast that shines a spotlight on the influencer marketing industry. And now let's take a look at some of the events coming up in the influencer and marketing world. The Content Marketing World Conference and Expo takes place between the 3rd and 6th of September at the Huntington Convention Centre in Cleveland, Ohio. It provides an opportunity for you to learn and network with the best and the brightest in the content marketing industry. Leading brand marketers and experts from around the world will present over 120 sessions and workshops. These will cover strategy, storytelling, ROI, demand generation, AI and other new ideas. Speakers include Nila Ali, VP of Strategic Partnerships at BuzzFeed. You can find out more at contentmarketingworld.com. The Tastemaker Conference describes itself as the food blogger conference for influencers and content creators. It's a place where food bloggers make contact with incredible vendors and foodies. The bulk of Tastemaker Conference 2019 will be on Thursday, September 19th and Friday, September the 20th, with an additional option for an exclusive excursion on Saturday, September the 21st. When you buy a general admission ticket, you get the choice of attending up to eight different workshops and classes, access to panels led by food influencer experts, a swag bag worth over $200, and access to the Sponsor Exhibitor Hall, where you'll make connections with brands who want to work with you. The event takes place in Portland, Oregon, and details are at tastemakerconference.com. And the Festival of Marketing is on the 10th and 11th of October at Tobacco Dock in London. It has a number of headline speakers, including Andrew Lippmann, Associate Director from Digital Life MIT Media Lab, exploring what it's like working in the future. There'll also be top marketing speakers from Kodak, GSK, Honda, Britvic, the female lead, KFC and Sky. In all, there are over 250 speakers across 12 stages. Tickets are priced at £1,195 plus VAT for the two-day event from festivalofmarketing.com. There's a young marketeer's price from £495. So before we go, let's get another three top tips for a successful influencer campaign from an industry expert. Here's Joey Chan from Linkfluence. Uh, first tip is really to expand uh, your definition of an influencer. So um, don't think it's only all the Kardashians or like a, a people with a certain number of followers, but really like it could be a way way more niche. It could be way more like way smaller. There are a lot of micro influencers we're talking about now. Definitely. Like they tend to also have higher engagement. So really expand your, your definition and, and your search. Um, second, it's really um, to... Uh, focus not on vanity metrics, but on behavioral metrics. What I mean by that is don't just think about how many followers or reach the impressions you get, but really like whether your campaign is tied to a business uh, outcome. So like, are people clicking? Are they buying? Like, these are really the metrics that you want to be tracking to ensure real ROI. Um, and lastly, uh, f- 
jump on board if you haven't started. Like it's really, I think now the conversation is how you do influencer marketing rather than whether you should or like why, because we have seen the ROI, we see people are doing it. So really just, just start like test different strategies and see what works for your brand. Well, that's it for this edition. I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, if you have, please subscribe and share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. As always, we'd welcome your feedback and comments. Just email feedback at influencepodcast.net. In the next edition, we're going to be meeting Amy Shearer, who's head of influencer marketing at Mumsnet. But until then, from me, Gordon Glenister, thanks for listening and goodbye.